Drug maker AbbVie gives the first detailed projections for revenue trends after their drug Humira loses protection from generic competition in the U.S. And Crane's government reporter A.D. Quigg joins the podcast today to talk about the latest with Chicago Public Schools and the Teachers Union. Mayor Lori Lightfoot and CPS CEO Janice Jackson announced that they had a tentative deal with the Chicago Teachers Union to bring teachers back to classrooms in a phased-in manner over the next few weeks. She'll also talk about the work of former CTU President Karen Lewis, who has died at age 67. She was funny and sharp-witted and tough and plain-spoken, great quotes, and very smart. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Monday, February 8th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined now by Crane's government reporter, A.D. Quigg. So, A.D., we have a lot to catch up on about Chicago Public Schools and about the Chicago Teachers Union. But I also want to talk about former CTU president Karen Lewis, who we learned this morning had died at age 67. Yeah, she was a an incredible force in shaping how we view the Chicago Teachers Union today, not just a bargaining unit that represents teachers and other staff at the Chicago Teachers Union at, at Chicago Public Schools, but also a broader, strong uh, political force in the city that is not reckoned with like other unions are reckoned with. I never had the privilege to cover her. I, my understanding is she was very fun to cover because she was funny and sharp-witted and tough and plain-spoken, great quotes, and very smart. I knew her uh, because of what an impact she had on the 2015 race for Chicago mayor. She was supposed to run, uh, but was diagnosed in 2014 with glioblastoma, which is a really ag- aggressive form of brain cancer. She retired from the union in, in 2018 to focus on her health, uh, but she was part of this movement in the union in 2010 called CORE, which was a more progressive, more aggressive uh, sector of the union that wanted to fight harder for more stuff. And we're also part of a kind of broader movement in labor that wanted to bargain for the common good, which was basically working with people on the ground and community organizations to insert into bargaining things that would benefit the community. And we saw that certainly play out in in the 2019 uh, negotiations between CTU and the mayor, but also in 2012. So she she got this reputation for bolstering the union's power and taking it directly to Chicago's most powerful. She, she and Rahm Emanuel went toe-to-toe uh, more than once. That first 2012 strike in Chicago really kind of inspired other folks in the labor movement, kind of started this Red for Ed movement among teachers that was especially active in 2018. We saw so many teacher strikes across the country, and a lot of that was kind of uh, pioneered by Lewis and CTU starting in, in 2010. Just a force, an amazing woman. And Greg Hines, my colleague, wrote a great profile of her in 2013 about who she was when she wasn't 
rabble-rousing. She, she could speak a bunch of languages. She played piano. She loved the opera. She considered uh, going to medical school. She ended up teaching chemistry for more than 20 years and then kind of eventually uh, moving up in the union. I spoke to her for a profile of uh, C2 Vice President Stacey Davis-Gates, and I had, I had known her as like dynamo, scary person who could like intimidate anyone because she had the force of a 25,000 member union. But she was talking to me about how she was scared in a meeting with House Speaker Mike Madigan because she, she didn't want to screw up for her members. Like she felt like it was very high stakes and she didn't want to mess up. And her members were, were always on her mind. Um, I wish I would have gotten to cover her more because my understanding is she was very fun and uh, engaging and challenging and a, a complicated, interesting person. I wish I would have gotten to cover her more. And what elements of her legacy do you get the sense that we still see within CTU now? Uh, I think pushing, pushing for more and broader things um, that are outside of typical four corners of a, of a contract. Uh, typical bargaining is wages, benefits, pensions, hours. CTU unabashedly pushes for stuff that is well outside that boundary. Um, in the most recent negotiations, we heard the mayor talking about how upset she was that the union seemed to be moving the goalposts. They wanted to increase affordable housing, to uh, defund the Chicago Police Department, to remove uh, school resource officers from schools. And this is what they did in 2019 as well. They said, uh, we want our contract to be contingent on hiring uh, social workers, nurses, other support staff, and a lot of other promises, basically, that aren't typical to negotiations. So I think Lewis's ability to go beyond the four corners and also to uh, rouse the public to her side, CTU and teachers in general have broad support because she and other union folks did such an effective job framing teachers as very central to the success or failure of the city as a whole, teachers in schools. So I think her her legacy of um, pushing the boundaries uh, drumming up public support in the way that she did and talking about issues that were outside the classroom um, are very much part of what CTU is all about today. And I think that brings us up to now. So as of this recording, it's midday on Monday. What is the latest with talks between CPS and CTU? Sunday, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and CPS CEO Janice Jackson announced that they had a tentative deal with the Chicago Teachers Union to bring teachers back to classrooms um, in a phased-in manner over the next few weeks, uh, beginning as soon as this Thursday. It's my understanding that the union will have a meeting later this afternoon, potential vote um, this evening, which would either send the agreement language uh, to full members for a vote, or and they would approve it, or they would basically say no deal and potentially go back to bargaining or on strike. Um, so a few of the things that the city agreed to as part of this. Um, there's a vaccination plan prioritizing union members who have to report to school buildings and uh, members that are already in person because there are uh, quite a bit of staff that have actually been in person at schools for several months. Older, high-risk uh, members would be prioritized as well as employees who live in the 10 zip codes with the highest COVID positivity rates. Um, that deal includes 2,000 expedited vaccines to be offered this week. The city also made new and pretty broad accommodations for 
people who would like to work from home. Um, That was a big sticking point throughout negotiations. District leaders were worried that they would not be able to sufficiently staff schools if they granted too many of these accommodations. So teachers who are themselves high risk or are primary caregivers for people in their homes that are high risk can work remotely. Teachers who do not have any students that put their hand up and said, yes, I'd like to learn in person, can you continue to work remotely? So if all your students are remote, you can keep teaching remote. And in some cases, the district basically agreed to reassign students that are there in person to different homerooms or to combine some classes to make those accommodations workable. Um, They also have agreed to specific health guidelines, basically percent positivity within the city and within the school that would basically um, result in either a class going home, a school going home, or for the district to stop in-person learning entirely. Um, those are complicated numbers that wouldn't benefit anyone to, <laughs> for me to read them all off, but that was a big a big sticking point in negotiations that uh, it appears they have a deal. But again, the union has to agree to it, and we're expecting that uh, that answer later today. And so if an agreement is reached, what kind of timeline are we looking at for this return to school? One interesting thing I thought is that there is not an agreement yet for high school students. They have been left out of this conversation um, pretty much from the start. But basically, it will begin with pre-K and cluster students returning Thursday, this Thursday, and other grades phased in throughout the weeks to come. Kindergarten through fifth grade would return on February 22nd. Staff for those people would basically come back a week before and prepare their classrooms. Then students would come back on March 1st. Sixth through eighth grade staff would return on March 1st, followed by students on March 8th. So we should have, if the deal is agreed, all pre-K through eighth grade students back in classrooms in one month. Uh, Again, we do not have a deal on high school students that is yet to be discussed, and it's a pretty thorny one, but I think the thinking behind it is that uh, high school students are generally more comfortable and able to engage in remote learning, so it's not as acute as it is for young learners who are super-duper struggling with remote learning. Um, The other question is going to be, if the district demonstrates that it can do this safely, um, they're going to open up families to raise their hands and say, I'd like to come back in the fourth quarter in person. That will rely heavily on how well COVID's trajectory goes here, how well the vaccination rollout goes here. And we have these uh, scary variants that are emerging already in Illinois that spread more quickly, uh, are more contagious. So I'll be anxious to see if the pace of the vaccination rollout can keep up and help protect the city against some of the impacts of these fast-moving variants. Indeed. Well, we will keep turning to you for the latest. Thanks so much, A.D. Thank you. Coming up, Northbrook-based Crate and Barrel quietly named another CEO. It's fifth in nine years. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Chicago Comes Back. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth.
For the first time, AbbVie gave detailed projections for revenue plans once its top-selling drug Humira loses protection against other companies looking to make generic versions of the drug in the U.S. CEO Richard Gonzalez told investors that sales will go down when Humira generics enter the U.S. market in 2023. They'll rise modestly in 2024 and reach high single-digit growth in 2025 and beyond. The prediction of a rapid rebound answers to some of the uncertainty that's hung over AbbVie as it nears the end of a long exclusivity period for the drug. Humira sales peaked at just under $20 billion in 2018, which accounted for about 61% of AbbVie's overall revenue. But international sales of Humira sank 13.6% last year when European patents expired, even as rising U.S. sales pushed overall revenue for the drug up by 3%. AbbVie is counting on two immunology drugs to fill much of the gap left behind by Humira. Gonzalez says Renvoke and Skyrizi will generate combined annual sales of 50 15 billion by 2025, products that posted revenue of 2.3 billion last year. Boeing CEO David Calhoun told analysts that virus relief efforts are likely to siphon government dollars away from defense spending, which would hurt Boeing operations that make fighter jets, tankers, helicopters, and other military equipment. For backstory, the Chicago-based company counts on its defense unit to offset cyclical downturns in commercial aviation and vice versa. But now it faces the possibility that both businesses will be declining at the same time. So far, defense has provided Boeing some stability during everything that has engulfed the company for the past 24 months, starting with the 737 MAX crisis and followed by the pandemic. Defense accounted for 45% of Boeing's more than $58 billion in revenue last year, roughly double the share two years earlier. But sales of military aircraft, weapons, and space equipment and services have been flat the past three years at about $26 billion, while commercial jet sales plunged by more than $41 billion. Meanwhile, rival defense contractors capitalizing on a surge in Pentagon spending posted annual growth of about 9 to 12%. Boeing used $18.4 billion in cash in 2020 as deliveries of the 737 MAX were on hold for most of the year and as deliveries of the 787 also stopped because of quality control issues. And S&P Global Ratings estimates that the company is likely to burn an additional $3 to $5 billion this year. Analysts say that Boeing can likely weather the storm. It has nearly $26 billion in cash and short-term investments, having borrowed about $36 billion since the downturn began. Calhoun told analysts he expects Boeing's defense revenue to grow, quote, at the lower end of the single digits this year. The U.S. government's already committed to more than $2.5 trillion in coronavirus relief from vaccinations to economic stimulus, and the Biden administration is pushing for another $1.9 trillion in pandemic relief. Total federal spending has been about $4.8 trillion annually. Anthony Losasso, an economics professor at DePaul University, told Cranes that when the dust settles on COVID, there's likely to be a high amount of debt. And the cost of servicing that debt will naturally crowd out other spending priorities and saying defense will likely be pretty high on that list. Tesla invested $1.5 billion in Bitcoin, setting its intent to begin accepting the cryptocurrency as a form of payment and sending prices up to a record high. Tesla said in a filing on Monday it made the bet on Bitcoin after updating its investment policy last month to allow it to buy digital assets, saying in the filing, quote, We expect to begin accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment for our products in the near future, subject to applicable laws and initially on a limited basis. 
And Tesla's embrace of Bitcoin lends increased legitimacy to electronic currencies, which have become more of a mainstream asset in recent years, despite skepticism from some. On the news, the cryptocurrency rose as much as 16% to an all-time high by mid-morning trading in New York. Northbrook-based Crate and Barrel quietly named retail veteran Janet Hayes as CEO six months ago, making her the company's fifth CEO in nine years. And industry observers are optimistic. Crate and Barrel entered the pandemic with a strong online presence, allowing it to capitalize on increasing demand for home furnishings. Gordon Siegel, who co-founded the company with his wife Carol in 1962 and who was CEO until 2008, says of Hayes, quote, She's been in the industry for a long time. She had great experience and she knows vendors and relationships. Hayes worked in senior roles at Williams-Sonoma for 12 years. The last half is president of the Williams-Sonoma brand. Company filings show the brand revenue grew each year that Hayes was in charge. Homebound customers with disposable income drove sales at home furnishing stores in 2020. After dropping off to less than $2 billion in April, sales rebounded to almost $4.8 billion in September. That according to data from the U.S. Census Bureau. And the focus on the home is expected to keep going, according to data from consulting firm Accenture, who said that 57% of consumers plan to do most of their socializing from home for the next six months. And many are continuing to move to bigger homes that need decor. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's government reporter, A.D. Quigg. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.